if we are engaged in a pattern of arguing and quarreling, it's because we love God too little and this world and our own sinful, selfish desires too much. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello again, I'm Bill Wright. Tom is continuing our current series titled War and Peace, Learning to Deal with Conflict, and he has part five for us today. We're exploring what James 4, verses 1 through 10, say about conflict. So far, we've learned the source of conflicts and sinful desires in our personal lives and the three practical steps towards resolving them. On today's program, Tom will examine the root sin behind personal conflicts, and the answer may surprise you. Now, before we begin, let's join Tom here with a preview. Tom? It's interesting when you consider what James is teaching here in these three very practical steps for dealing with the conflict in our lives, it jumps out at me that all three of these steps have to do with our knowledge. So often, our problem as believers starts with our thinking. Our mindset needs to be changed. We need the Holy Spirit using the Word of God to renew our minds, to change the grid through which we see the world so that we can think God's thoughts. We can have, as Paul says, the mind of Christ. And that's really what James is trying to help us do here. Thanks, Tom. And friend, let's join our teacher now and discover more from God's Word on The Word Unleashed. James here tells us exactly what the problem is. And even better, James tells us how to deal with it, how to resolve the arguing and fighting that can be so much a part of life in our world. You follow along as I begin in James chapter 4, verse 1. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which he has made to dwell in us, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. This paragraph contains three very practical steps for dealing with the conflicts in our lives. And all three of the steps involve our knowledge. So often our problem as believers is our thinking. Our mindset needs to be adjusted. We need our minds renewed by the Spirit using the Word of God. We need to think God's thoughts after Him. That's what James is attempting to do here. Notice in chapter 4, verse 1, 
He asks, what is the source? And he goes on to explain the source of the quarrels. In verse 4, he says, do you not know? He's saying, you ought to know this. I taught you this, but somehow the truth of it hasn't really gripped your heart. So let me explain it to you again. And then in verse 7, he says, therefore, in light of all that I've just explained, let me give you the application. And he goes through a series of imperatives. The implication is that you and I don't know how we got into the conflicts and quarrels, what the issues are that lie behind it, and how to get out of the situation, how to extricate ourselves from our current sinful, quarreling, arguing condition. We need to learn the path out. And James' mission in these verses is to explain to us what we need to know about how to deal with conflict. The three practical steps that lead us, that set us on a path to resolving the conflicts that are so much a part of our lives. Now, these are three very practical steps. We've already learned one of them. The first step is to identify the true source of conflict. You can see that in verses 1 to 3. He says in verse 1, what is the source? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? We learn that it's the pursuit of sinful pleasures or To put it another way, our efforts to satisfy the sinful cravings of our hearts that creates quarrels and arguments. A way to picture it is like this. There are within our hearts, within that unredeemed part of us, the Bible calls our flesh, there are these cravings that are like a mighty army crying out for satisfaction and fulfillment. And when someone gets in the way of our fulfilling or satisfying those cravings, an argument breaks out. That army expends its energy on the person that stands in their way. That army of cravings declares war against anyone who gets in the way of that satisfaction. Whatever it is, we have set our hearts upon. Every time you and I find ourselves in a quarrel, in a fight, in an argument, we should ask ourselves the simple question, what self-centered craving or sinful expectation am I trying to protect by engaging in this argument? That's what it comes down to. But even as you think about that as the true source, it raises an important question and one that I need to answer before we move to James' second point. The question is this, is it ever right for Christians to fight? Is it ever right to be locked in conflict with other Christians? And if it is right, what would such a conflict look like? Well, you'll discover pretty quickly with me here that it is appropriate at times to be in conflict, or at least what appears to be conflict. But there are several questions that can help us discern when it's right for a Christian to be engaged in conflict with other Christians when it's right to fight? Number one, ask yourself this question. What are you fighting about? What is the issue itself? You see, the only acceptable issues over which we as Christians can fight are those that Scripture identifies. It's when we're obeying God. It's when God has commanded us to fight that it's acceptable. And in the New Testament, there are two specific reasons that are laid down that are acceptable causes of conflict among Christians. The first is in the practice of church discipline, in keeping the church pure. You see, in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus lays out a process. 
a process in which first one individual privately goes to another, then he brings several other Christians back, and eventually the entire church finds itself set against another believer for the purpose of restoring that believer, for the purpose of bringing them back. But to someone outside the church or even an untaught believer within the church, that can appear to be sinful conflict. And yet God has commanded it of us. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 5. Here you see the application of it even to leaders in the church. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 19, Paul writes, Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. There's protection built in, as there was in the Old Testament law, as there is even in the process of Matthew 18 of church discipline. Two or three witnesses. Verse 20, those elders, however, who continue in sin, rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest will be fearful of sinning. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. He said, don't let whoever it is sway you from this path. You must do this. But if this happens, God forbid, in our church, and if it were to happen in another church, it could appear to some to be sinful conflict, but it's not. This is commanded by God. It must be done, however awkward, however difficult, however much it may be uncomfortable to us. You see the same thing in Titus chapter 3 of the factious person. Titus chapter 3, verse 10 Reject a factious man after the first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. Here you have a slightly different process, or I should say the process slightly altered, of Matthew 18. He says when you go to him privately, and then you go to him with two or three witnesses, if the person is a factious man, don't tell the whole church and encourage them to go to him, because that's exactly what a factious person wants. Instead, reject him. Take him to that fourth step in which you put him out of the church. Again, I ask you, if this were to happen, would it not appear to be and would there not be some conflict in the church? Well, of course there would be. And yet, it's commanded by our God. A second reason that we're given for acceptable conflict within the church is when it's in defense of the faith. In defense of the faith. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18, Paul tells Timothy, fight the good fight. Now, what's he talking about? Well, he's just told him that he has, Timothy has had passed on to him sound doctrine. Paul calls it the treasure. And he says, Timothy, you're supposed to defend that treasure. You're supposed to protect the treasure. Fight the good fight. Do whatever you have to to defend the treasure of sound doctrine. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3, he says he's a good soldier. Timothy, the ministry is the life of a soldier, but we're all commanded to that life. Turn to Jude, verse 3. This small little epistle at the end of our New Testament lays out the reality that there are, mixed into the church, pretenders. And so Jude writes in verse 3, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, he says, listen, I wanted to write to you and encourage you about the salvation that we've received together and all that God has accomplished for us. He says, but I couldn't because I felt the necessity to write to you appealing 
that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. He says you've got to contend, you've got to fight, you've got to defend it. The faith is that body of doctrine that we have received from the generations that have faithfully proclaimed it in the past and passed it on to us. And he says, verse 4, here's the reason, because there are certain persons that have crept in unnoticed, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. He says, you've got to fight. You've got to fight for the truth. And there can be times in the church when we're truly fighting for the truth. It could be a time of conflict, and yet we're commanded to do that. The most graphic and compelling illustration of this, of course, is in Galatians chapter 2. You remember Paul gives it to us, an account of his interaction with Peter. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 4, he says, Because of the false brethren that were secretly brought in, they sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. He says, but we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. Paul engages himself in conflict with error, even with Peter. Verse 11, but when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, publicly, by the way, because he stood condemned. For prior to coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they came, he bought into the whole deal that was going on in the churches in Galatia. He says, they feared the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, even Barnabas. Verse 14, but when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in the presence of all, I rebuked Peter in the presence of everyone. That's conflict. And yet, it's absolutely crucial for the life of the church. We are commanded to engage in conflict when it involves the purity of the church and sinning believers that need to be dealt with, and when it involves the defense of the truth, as God has given it to us, the treasure. So ask yourself, what are you fighting about? Secondly, ask yourself, why are you fighting? Why are you fighting? What's your motive? The only acceptable motive for fighting is the glory of God, and the goal is obedience to that God. That's the only reason to fight. What are you fighting about? Is it for the purity of the church? Is it in defense of the faith? And are you fighting for the glory of God? There have been times in church history, and even in modern times, when bedrock issues were involved, when the motives on the surface seemed to be right, and yet it still degenerated to sinful arguing and fighting. So how do you know if you're engaged in a righteous fight, both in the cause and in the manner? Well, ask yourself a third question. How are you fighting? You see, even conflict for a godly cause must never be in the spirit of a quarrel or an argument. It must never be accompanied by the kinds of sins of attitude and speech that accompany most arguments. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 31 says, Let all bitterness, that's internal resentment because of another person's hurt, and wrath, this word speaks of outbursts of anger, and anger, this refers to the internal slow boil, so you've got 
the one who blows up and the one who clams up, and clamor, that's yelling, shouting, raising your voice in an argument, in a quarrel, and slander, that's name-calling, that's not sticking with the issue that's under discussion, but attacking the person. Be put away from you along with all malice, all hateful intent to harm and hurt another person. You see, even a biblical fight should never be carried out in contradiction of this command. A wise and mature Christian will fight if the circumstances require, but he never enjoys it. He is by nature, as we saw in chapter 3, verse 17, peaceable. So if your argument, listen carefully, if your argument or your fight is in obedience to Scripture... If your motive is for the glory of God, and if you're fighting in a gracious, selfless spirit, then this passage doesn't apply to you. You do need to understand that even when conflicts occur that involve obedience to the truth, those people who want peace at all costs are going to cry foul. They will immediately assume that it's a violation of unity or that it's an unbiblical conflict. Our response to that is, as Peter's was to the Sanhedrin, It's better to obey God than men. So there is such a thing as righteous or godly conflicts. But listen carefully. The truth is 99% of the arguments and fights in our lives are sinful and selfish. And the reason we're fighting is not for the glory of God, not for the desire to obey, but out of pride and selfish ambition and jealousy and the satisfaction of our desires. James says the true source of most arguments and quarrels is the cravings of our heart or our lusts. If we're going to deal with our quarreling and arguing, if we're going to see a decrease in the pattern of our sin in this area, we first got to understand the source. And listen carefully, the source is not the other person. And the source is not the issue, whatever it is. James doesn't even tell us here what the issue is among these people. It's not the point. And the problem is not the circumstances. The source is our own sinful hearts. We crave something. And that other person stands in the way of whatever it is we want. J.A. Motyer writes, Conflict is at root no more than the existence in each of us of a self-centered heart, a controlling spirit of self-interest. This is the militant cause of all disturbance. So the first step in overcoming conflict is to identify the real source, the true source. What is it? It's the pursuit of our pleasure. It's something we want, and the other person stands in the way. Now today I want us to look at the second practical step in dealing with conflict in our lives, and it's this. Not only must we identify the true source, but we must magnify the real sin behind conflict. Magnify the real sin behind conflict. What exactly is the real sin that lies behind arguing and fighting and quarreling? Well, it's identified here for us in one Greek word. In English, it's translated, you adulteresses. Now, I don't know about you, but that's pretty shocking to read that from the pen of James. Remember how James has, prior to this, referred to his readers. Before this, he's called them my brethren. 
That sounds nice, doesn't it? My brethren. You see that in chapter 1, verse 2. In chapter 2, verse 1, verse 14. Chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 10. Chapter 3, verse 12. My brethren. He's also called them my beloved brethren. Chapter 1, verse 16, verse 19. Chapter 2, verse 5. Imagine for a moment that you are part of the congregation who originally received this letter, one of the congregations that received it. You were in Jerusalem. James was your beloved pastor. And now you've heard that a letter has arrived from Jerusalem, written by James to you, and you've gathered to hear that letter read for the first time. And James has said some hard things so far, hasn't he? We've all found ourselves pierced by his words, and yet he still maintained that love and calling us his brethren, his beloved brethren. Imagine how shocking it would have been that first time to have been seated in the pew, as it were, or sitting in the house of one of the churches there in one of those cities in Asia Minor, and to have heard your pastor say, you adulteresses, would have been a horrible thing. They were undoubtedly horrified, because that's not a label anyone wants to wear. And because of their Jewish background, they immediately understood what James meant. Because you see, this, this phrase, this word, has its root in the Old Testament. You remember, of course, that in Genesis chapter 12, God appears to Abraham. And he tells Abraham that he is going to choose his descendants, which will eventually come to be known as Israel, as his own covenant people. And eventually, as the Old Testament unfolds through the words of the prophets, we learn that God pictures his relationship with Israel, the descendants of Abraham, as that of a marriage. There are a lot of passages we could turn to. Just turn with me to one of them, Isaiah chapter 54. Isaiah 54, verse 5. Isaiah says, For your husband, Israel, is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth. For the Lord has called you like a wife forsaken and grieved in spirit, even like a wife of one's youth when she is rejected, says your God. For a brief moment I forsook you, but with great compassion I will gather you. Here's a description of God casting off his unfaithful wife, but only for a short time before he throws his arms of love around her. But what I want you to see is Israel here is pictured as his wife. So when Israel was unfaithful to God, when she allowed her heart to wander away, when she chose a path of sin, when she got involved in worshiping the idols of the peoples around her, God accused her of spiritual adultery. There are countless Old Testament passages that make that point, but I think none more clear or more direct than Hosea. Turn over a few pages to the minor prophet Hosea, and you remember that God, through Hosea and his relationship with his wife Gomer, pictured the unfaithfulness of Israel to him. Gomer, you remember, became involved with a countless number of men in unfaithfulness to her husband, Hosea. And in chapter 2, God makes the connection to him and Israel. Listen to what he says in Hosea 2, verse 5. For their mother has played the harlot. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. 
Therefore, God says, I will hedge up her way with thorns. I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She will pursue her lovers, but she will not overtake them. And she will seek them, but she will not find them. Then she will say, I will go back to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part five of his current series, War and Peace, Learning to Deal with Conflict. Tom will have part six for you on our next program. We do hope you'll join us then. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And be sure to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening. The Word Unleashed exists because God, in His Word, has given you every spiritual resource you need to grow in Jesus Christ. It's our prayer that the power of God's Word be unleashed in your life.